We'll take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah 64. If you have walked with God for any length of time, you know the feeling of unanswered prayers. I'm not talking about prayers that you think, well, maybe God doesn't care about. I'm not talking about those prayers for miraculous hair growth or those prayers to win the lottery, none of those kind of prayers. I'm talking about when you pray prayers that you know align with the heart of God. Prayers that you know that if they were answered, they would glorify God and they would bless people. When you pray those prayers over and over and over and God doesn't answer, it, it can be difficult. Gary Thomas has written a book about marriage called Cherish. And in that book, he talks about what often happens in marriage. It's called the spiral of contempt. What he says is this, often what happens in marriage is it begins with disappointment in your spouse. That disappointment can lead to frustration. That frustration, if not dealt with, can lead to bitterness. And that bitterness can lead to contempt. So what started off as just a disappointment can end up into to all out contempt and, and hatred, despising your spouse. What I've discovered over the years is not only does that happen in marriages and in relationships, if we're not careful, that can happen in your relationship with the Lord. You can have a disappointment in your heart, maybe about something that God has not done that you thought we was gonna do an unanswered prayer. And, and if you're not careful with that, that disappointment can lead to frustration. And if you're not careful with that, that frustration can lead to bitterness and that bitterness can lead to contempt. And there are people who have contempt towards God all because they didn't know how to deal with the disappointment of a moment in which it seemed that God didn't answer a prayer they thought that he should answer. And so what do you do when you're disappointed with God? What do you do when you feel like God should have done something that he hasn't done? And the reason I'm asking that question is because I found myself in the middle of the summer battling through some some beginnings of disappointment with God. I felt it in my spirit. I felt it kind of rising in me. I knew that it was dangerous. And I wanted to know how to deal with it. And it flowed out of a lot of things. I think some of it was just some personal things I wanted to see God do. I was writing in my, I keep a little prayer journal. I was writing in that uh, in the beginning of July, just pouring out my heart to God. And I was writing some things specifically that I wanted to see God do in my life so badly. And as I was writing, I stopped and I realized that the things I were writing down were exactly the same things I wrote down in January of 2022. 19 months just saying, Lord, I want you to do this. And listen, these are good things. They would help me, they would help you, they would help my family, just things I wanted to see God do in my life, a, a deeper work I wanted him to do. And for 19 months, just praying, God, would you do this work in my life and realizing I'm still praying for those same things and not seeing a a lot of progress, and you just kind of feel a little bit welling up in you, a little disappointment, maybe bordering on frustration with the Lord. I've been carrying a lot of the weight this summer for our building plans and all the things we want the Lord to do. It was a year ago in which we started talking about this, and 
And we've done well. God has, has been really gracious to us, but we're kind of stuck. We're like $3.7 million short. And, and so I just, I've been feeling the weight of that. And, you know, one of the things I say to the Lord is, Lord, we did this right. Like we, we didn't hire a company. We, we didn't beg for money. I had no individual meetings. We didn't target big donors. I gave you the information. I asked you to pray for 21 days and then ask you to give what God told you to give. I don't think we could have done it in a more honoring way. Think about the fact that 99% of our church said, yes, we voted to affirm this is exactly what we need to do. And then 56% of the church gave and that stuff just kind of starts to bother me and I wonder why we're stuck. And so I feel a little bit more of that kind of disappointment settling in. And there's just, there's just things I want God to do in your life. Like there's prayers I've been praying for three or four years for you, for us as a church. Ways in which I want to see God change us. Ways in which I want to see God grow us. Ways in which I want us to be different. Ways in which I want him to revive us and wake us up and stir up a heart for the nations and for the lost. There's so many things I've been praying and you just wait and wait and you, you wonder what to do when you feel that little bit of disappointment creep in. I have to believe you know what I'm talking about. Like, I have to know that you know the feeling of a wayward child that you've been praying for for years that's not coming back. Of a marriage that seems to be getting worse and dissolving and you've prayed and it says, Lord, this would be honoring to you. It would glorify you if this marriage was restored. Of some hope or dream or desire that you say, Lord, I want this so badly and you've prayed and, and the Lord's not answering. Maybe it's some besetting sin that you say, Lord, why, why wouldn't you take this away? Maybe it's some hurt or bitterness or resentment from the past and just feel a little bit of that disappointment with God starting to creep up. And as I was learning how to navigate this, the Lord took me to Isaiah 64. A wonderful passage of scripture, not only because of the text itself, but because of the context. Isaiah had an extremely difficult ministry. He was speaking to a rebellious people of God who acknowledged him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And so exterior-wise, something very likely that could happen in a room like this, you have this group of people that are doing the right things, they're offering sacrifices, they're going to the temple, they're doing what is right, but the reality is their heart is far from God and God knows it and Isaiah knows it. And God has called Isaiah to speak his word of judgment to a rebellious, hard-hearted, cold-hearted, idolatrous people. And he does it for 40 years. I, was, I went on a walk last night and I was just praying through my sermon. And I, I was thinking about how pitiful I am. If I have one Sunday where I just think, man, I didn't, you know, it was a B minus. I just, I didn't have my A game and, and nobody responded and nothing happened. Man, I can just spiral quickly. And Isaiah had 2,000 bad Sundays. He had, he had 2,000 bad Sundays where it just didn't seem like anyone was responding or the people were listening and they were rebellious people. And yet the Lord called him to keep preaching and keep preaching and keep preaching. And so in Isaiah 64, he pours out his heart to God. He cries out to God in what he wants to see God do, but what he hasn't seen God do. It says this in verse one. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountain quaked at your presence. 
From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts or works for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. And listen to these, to these next three verses, these last three verses. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? What he's saying is he's saying, I look at your house, the place that was created for your glory, the place where you placed your name, this place that was to be a light to the nations, that all the nations will be drawn by the glorious work they saw at your house, and it's in desolation. And then at the end he says, do you not care? <laughs> Are you going to keep restraining yourself? Are you not going to step in and act? Are you going to keep silent as all of these things are happening and your name is is being diminished, God. Would you exalt your name among your people? Isaiah is not only grieved, he's grieved that it doesn't appear that God is grieved. But I think one of the things that stirs in my heart as I read this text is that Isaiah really is bothered. Bothered's not a strong enough word. He's, he's deeply grieved. He's, he's heartbroken over what he sees. I think about that and I think about how much of that is missing in our day. Do you know that as followers of Jesus Christ, we should be deeply bothered by things. We should be deeply grieved by things. We should love what God loves. We should hate what God hates. There should be things that, that make us heartbroken. We should think about 63 million babies who've been aborted and we should be angry about that. We should be broken over that. We should think about the massive sexual perversion in the day in which we live, and that should stir up anger in us. We should grieve over that. We should be broken over that, over the blatant immorality that's paraded around us. We should think about the demonic assault upon marriages, the demonic assault upon our children, that all of these things that we thought would never be normalized are now normalized. That should make us angry. We, we should feel a, a holy grieving and heartbreaking over over what is happening in the world around us. But what should break our heart more is what's happening in the church, not outside the church. You read the prophets, the prophets are, are proclaiming what is going on outside in the world around them, but, but the biggest grievance is always what is happening in the heart of God's people. And the reality is, is you wonder sometimes, where is the deep passion for God? Where is the zeal for God? Where is the hatred for the things that God hates? Where is the heart that will not tolerate sin any longer, that will stand for the things of God? Where is that? What should grieve us the most is when our hearts are cold, when we're lukewarm towards the things of God, when we treat the bride of Christ as if it's nothing, when, when church gets all of our leftovers. 
I want to be honest with you. I love you so deeply. You know that. And I care for you so much. But time after time, I stand up here and I just wonder, where is the broken heart over sin? Where is the hatred for hypocrisy? Where is the disgust at walking into church and acting like everything's fine? But the reality is there is deep sin in your life. That should bother us. And it bothers Isaiah. He's, he's deeply grieved by what's happening here. The lifeless and dead and cold hearts of the people. And Isaiah knows at this point, after doing this for 40 years, that there is only one thing that can fix it. That's the presence of God. That's the presence of God over and over. God, that the mountains might quake at your presence that the nations might tremble at your presence. You came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. One of the words we could use to describe this is Isaiah knew that the only thing that would fix the heart of God's people is revival. Not one that you schedule to start on Sunday morning and ends on Wednesday night. The kind where God shows up in a way that he becomes real and glorious, that people are humbled by their sin, their hearts are broken, they start to receive new affection for the things of the Lord, they start feeling in their heart their boiling of passion for God and love and desire for him. That's what the Bible means by the idea of revival, of a stirring up of a heart. And that is a supernatural work of God. And that's really what Isaiah is praying. God, <laughs> I've done what you've asked me to do. I've prayed, I've, I've preached, I've testified, I've said everything you told me to say, but what we need now is something only you can do. God, we need you to come and to, to manifest yourself among us. Look at the emotion of the text in verse one. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. That oh means he is beginning with a cry. This is a plea to God. That word rend means to tear something apart violently. Here's what he's saying, God, I don't want a little drop of your presence. God, rip open the heavens and pour out your presence upon us. God, that's what we need. These people are so asleep. They're so cold hearted. Their passion for you is so low. Lord, we, we need something significant. We need you to tear open the heavens and pour down your presence upon us. I mean, just look at the exclamation point at the end of verse two, God, what we want is in the same way that when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil, we want your presence to come like that. If you know this idea of, of being fired up for God or the fire of God coming, fire, uh, a picture of the manifest presence of God all through scripture, it is here that he's saying, we want the fire of your presence to come down. And everything about this just has this emotion of pleading and crying for the Lord to do something dramatic. And I love that idea of, of fire kindling brushwood and fire causing water to boil. What he's asking for in a sense, and he's using all kinds of metaphors, but one is that God would rip open the heavens and come down. But then it's kind of this picture of a volcanic eruption of the presence of God. <laughs> that it would just start to boil. And maybe it just boils with one or boils with two. But all of a sudden there is this boiling of the presence of God. This eruption of the fire of the presence of God. And so now the people in the church are not half-hearted for the Lord, they feel the burning desire and longing for God and for purity and for holiness and for the lost. Why? Because God's presence came. And it's not a crazy thing to ask because of what it says in verse three. Isaiah knows God's done it before. 
He says, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, you've done this before, and the mountains quaked at your presence. God, you've done this before, so I'm just asking you to do again what we know you've done before. I have to believe in those verses, he is looking back to what God did at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Listen to what it says as the people waited at the foot of Mount Sinai as Moses was going up to receive the law of the Lord. It says this, Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunder and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Isaiah knows that. Isaiah knows about that moment and saying, God, that's what I want. I want you to descend like a fire upon your people and stir something up that changes us forever, that wakes up these dead and cold hearts. Can I just remind you that that's our vision at Prince? Our vision is that we would be the visible presence of Jesus in our community. How can we ever be the visible presence of Jesus in our community if we are not filled with the presence of God? So God's desire for us as a church is that every one of us filled with the presence of God would leave here being a visible picture of the presence of God in our community. But we also wanna be a healthy, growing family of faith, passionate. That word matters, passionate means we are, we are desperate for this, we long for this, passionate to experience, enjoy, and expand the presence of God. That's our vision statement. We want to experience the presence of God. We want it to be real to us. We want to enjoy the presence of God. I want there to be nothing you enjoy more than spending time with God. And to expand his presence, that from this place, other people would come to know him and would experience his presence. That is our vision as a church. That's what I want to see God do in our church. Like, how can we be a passionate people unless we ourselves are filled with the very presence of God. And this is exactly what Isaiah is feeling. He's asking God to do something. And he longs for God to do what he knows that he's done before. And again, he's not just grieved that it's not happening, he's grieved that in his mind, it seems that God is not bothered the same way he is. God, why are you not responding? After 40 years of waiting on God, and we've all been there. Some of you are just at the beginnings of this. You feel a little bit of disappointment in God. Some of you have gone to, to more frustration with God and it's drawing you away from the Lord. Some of you are bitter towards the Lord. I have a very dear friend who's been close to me for many years who prayed for his dying mother to be healed and she wasn't healed and he admitted to me 30 years later, listen to me, that he hasn't prayed since. Well, that's bitterness and contempt towards God. Why? Because not knowing what to do with that little feeling of disappointment when God has not answered a prayer. And so what do you do? Well, you don't let it linger. You don't let it linger. You don't, you don't go down the spiral of disappointment and frustration and bitterness and contempt. What you do is you 
you hold on to what Isaiah held on to in one of the most precious verses in Isaiah 64, verse 4. What Isaiah does is what the psalmist so often does. He pours out his heart to God. He expresses his frustration. He expresses his disappointment. And then in the midst of being honest with God, he remembers the truth. (laughs) And what he remembers is this. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. And no eye has seen a God beside you. No one has ever seen a God like ours that does this. What? Who acts for those who wait for him. You could use the word works there. I prefer that word. Some versions use that. Who works for those who wait for him. So Isaiah, feeling the disappointment, longing for God to move, reminds himself that there has never been a God like our God who works for those who wait for him. It sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? That God works for you. That's what it says. That God works for those who wait for him. Think about this. If if, If you were a God, if you were a master, if you were a boss, there are two ways you could show your glory. There's two ways you could demonstrate your authority and your greatness and your power. One is by dominance. Dominance. You could just show how great you are. You could show your power by demanding everyone do lots of things for you. We see this in all of the pagan kings throughout the Bible. We see this in Pharaoh. We see this in Solomon's rebellious sons, where in order to show their power, they make everyone work more and work harder. So I'm going to gather as many people as I can, and I'm going to force them to work, and everyone's going to know how powerful I am by demanding everyone work for me. That's, that's dominance. That's one way to do it. Another way to show your power is by benevolence. You could show your power and you could show your strength and you could show your glory by loving and serving and helping and assisting other people. So taking all of your resources and and all of your abilities, instead of using it to dominate everyone, you could use all of those things to help others. God has chosen to glorify himself by helping us. God has chosen to glorify himself by using all of his power to assist the weak and the feeble and the needy. God has decided to glorify himself by coming to you in your weakest and darkest moments and showing that he is sufficient for you. That's the way in which God has chosen to show his glory. Taking helpless and needy and frail people and giving them strength. And what Isaiah is saying is no one has ever seen a God like that. Like every other God, because it is not real, has to be carried. But our God carries us. Every other God has to just be served. Why? Because they can't serve because they're not real. But our God, who is alive and well, displays his glory by helping us. And by coming alongside of us and by sustaining us. No one has ever seen a God like that. Is that true? Well, think of 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are his. What is God doing? He's looking in every aisle and he's saying, I want to show my strength to those who are mine. I want to show myself strong. I want to intervene. I want to take the helpless people and I want to step in. I want to work for you, the Lord says. Think about Mark 10, 45. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did Jesus came? Jesus came to serve us. Jesus came to give his life for us. Jesus came to help us in a way that we could not have helped ourselves. Jesus came to serve us. This is Romans 8, 28, that our God is working all things together for our good. It is Ephesians 1, 11, that our God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. We have a God who is always working and he is working for you. It says, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Now, in some sense, God works for everyone. And God is working in a thousand ways that no one ever notices. But this is talking about a special work of God. A special grace of God that is given to a certain group of people. It is those, you see it, who wait for him. And all of a sudden, that which sounded like a really great verse sounds really hard. Is it true? Yes. Is it good? Yes. Is it hard? It can be. Because when we think of waiting, we don't think about anything pleasant, do we? We think of waiting, we think of a waiting room. We think sitting in a room, reading a three-month-old people magazine, waiting for someone to call our name. Like we just, we don't have wonderful thoughts when we think about waiting. But waiting in scripture means something different. Waiting means, listen, confident anticipation. Get that down. Waiting means confident anticipation, which means I trust that God is working on my behalf and I am anticipating the good things that he's gonna do. You could say it this way. Waiting is doing what God tells you to do until God does what only he can do. Waiting is doing what you can do until God does what only he can do. What that means is this. By saying God works for us, we're not in control. We're not controlling the work of God. We don't tell him what to do and he does it, but we're also not passive. We walk in obedience. We humble ourselves. We seek help with sin. We get help for our marriages. We walk by faith. We trust the Lord. We pray. So we're not, we're not, we're not in control. We're not passive, but we're participating in his work. And so we're walking in obedience to the Lord. We're doing what he tells us to do, but then know that the real work we need done is something that only God can do. One of my favorite pictures of this, I want to put this picture in your mind, is in Mark chapter 4. Listen to this parable real quickly in Mark 4. It says this, Mark 4, 26. The kingdom of God as, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So here's a farmer and he's doing what he's supposed to do. He prepares the ground, he tills it, and then he scatters seed. Listen to this. He sleeps, he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. That's waiting on the Lord. What's he doing? Well, he's doing what he's supposed to do. He does the work. He plants the seed and he goes to bed and wakes up night after night, day after day. He just keeps doing it, it says. And then all of a sudden he wakes up and it's there and he doesn't know how. That's waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is doing what God has called you to do and then realizing someday that God has gone way beyond that and done something only he can do and you know not how. The only answer to it is that God did something. That's what it means to wait on the Lord. What he's saying is that there's a special work that God does in the life of those who trust him. God rewards faith in the life of those who walk by faith, who do what God has called them to do. And you say, well, well how do I know that he's working for me? Because I've got a thousand promises that tell us he is. 
say, well, how do I know those promises for me? Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That because of the work of Jesus Christ, every promise in the Bible is yes in Christ. I know it because Romans 8 says, he who did not spare his only son, will he not freely give you all things? He didn't spare his son. Do you think he's not gonna work on your behalf? Do you think he's not with you and working all things for, his, for your good and for, for his glory? Yes, promise after promise says that he is working, he is working, he is working. I know it's true because I know his heart and I know it's true because I believe his promises and I know it's true because I've seen him do it time and time again. The Lord gave me a good picture of, uh, of waiting this last week took our family rafting uh, this weekend and uh, Josiah and I were in a raft together. We make a good team. He's my buddy. And so he's up in the front and he's got his paddle and I'm in the back and, and I've got my paddle and, and we start off both working really hard. All right. So he's helping and he's going, he's really into it and he's really going, he's loving this and it's super exciting. And then about halfway through the trip, it's kind of long, about halfway through the trip, I start to get the feeling that he has discovered that he's okay if I just do it. I think he just all of a sudden has this confidence that he's going to get to where he needs to get and going to be totally safe because there's a guy behind him that's doing it all. And the reason I get this feeling is because of this picture right here. This is what I took from the back seat. That's Josiah right there. That just happened this last week. As soon as I took that picture, I got home and I put that picture on the front of my phone and I looked at Andrea and I said, that's my life right now. That's me. Because what it is is, Lord, I'm going to do what you've called me to do. I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek you. I'm going to do it. But at some point, you just got to say, Lord, I need you to do something that I can't do. And so I'm going to lift my hands and I'm going to praise the Lord. And I'm going to say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you with my life. And I, I trust you with the things I want to see you doing. I trust you with this church, with the building. I trust you with everything happening. I'm going to keep working, Lord. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep doing everything you've called me to do. But Lord, I'm also going to say, Lord, I need you to rend the heavens and come down. And at some point, in the midst of all of the work and all of the prayer, what waiting on the Lord means is that you start to rest without any of the pressure of saying, Lord, I'm going to walk in obedience to you, but you have to come through. And I'm going to trust that you will. And so this morning, we're going to do what Isaiah did. We're going to pray. We're going to start by pouring out our heart to God. We're going to start by being honest with God. We're going to start by saying, Lord, here's the thing I need you to do in my life so badly. Lord, here's the thing I want to see you do. Lord, I feel the disappointment. God, I want to fight that by faith. And the way I fight it by faith is as I pour out my heart to God, I say, Lord, I also want to, want to say, Lord, I trust you. This is really hard, but I believe that you're working for me. And so, God, I want to wait for you, and I want to be patient, and I want to trust that you're doing it, and I want to rest in the promise. And so, God, I'll be obedient. Whatever you tell me you do, I'm going to do. But, Lord, I'm also going to raise my hands and say, Lord, I need you to do something well beyond me. I know that you do it, and I'm asking that you will. So this morning, let's do what we do every single Sunday here. If you're physically able and willing, let's get on our knees.